Critical Point, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. On behalf of BIV, welcome to this special series of three podcasts on Indigenous business issues. The series is brought to you by Fortis BC, Energy at Work, and by TELUS, the first Canadian technology firm to launch an Indigenous reconciliation plan, available at telus.com slash reconciliation. The host of this series, I'm really pleased to see her again, is Chastity Davis-Alphonse of the Shilkotan Nation. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, Dr. Judith Sayers. Thank you so much for being with us today on our special podcast series to celebrate the second publication of Makuk P. Salem, the Indigenous business magazine um, that is uh, published through the business in Vancouver. And we're thrilled to have you here this morning with us to discuss um, the important topic of climate change and Indigenous knowledge. So I uh, just want to welcome you here. Dr. Judith Sayers is a longtime leader, trailblazer, change maker in the province and across Canada. She is from the Hapachasath First Nation. And she's currently on her second term as president of the New Channel Tribal Council and a proud mother of two and an auntie and mentor to many. I know you've been one to me for over a decade and just thrilled that we have the opportunity to have you here this morning. Hi, Judith. Hi, Chastity. Really good to be with you today. Um, so we want to just talk today again about climate change and Indigenous knowledge. And you've been working in this area, um, I think, for your entire career, uh, fighting for Indigenous rights and title and traditional governance to be acknowledged in this province as well as across the country. And I just wanted to start off the conversation about maybe just giving us a little overview of your career and the importance of having um, Indigenous governance and uh, Indigenous values um, in the topic of climate change. Sure. You know, I was raised in my community and I've always been taught the importance of Mother Earth and preserving our territories for future generations and to always ensure that uh, things will continue. You know, we don't have a word for sustainability in our language. Uh, we don't have um, a word for um, conservation. We didn't need to. The principles uh, that we live by were always there, that we looked after the land, because if we did, then it would look after us. And so if we were in violation of that, uh, then we would not have what we need. Uh, so, you know, in my career, I had decided a long time ago when I was 12, I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I did that right after high school, got my business degree, then went into law school. And I started practicing law um, in, actually I was in Alberta. I had gone to Alberta to work with the First Nations there when they were challenging the constitutional provisions uh, back in the early 80s. And, um, and after, after the constitution was brought home and, and it wasn't exactly as we wanted it, we, I just continued on and did my articling and, and law degree. So a lot of what I have done, you know, while I'm practicing law and then um, getting 
involved in, in working with First Nations. You know, I, I did spend about 10 years in the early years going to the United Nations and working on the Declaration of Indigenous Rights. Even before there was a first draft, I was over there. Um, but I, I did quit going about um, the early 1990s because I had two small children. It was too hard to travel anymore. Um, but, you know, a lot of the principles that we espouse there, you know, protecting our lands, our waters, our resources, you know, were really key. And as Indigenous people around the world, you know, we could agree that those were the most important things. You know, somebody might be arguing for ice flows and we'd be arguing for, you know, clean water and, you know, like there's, but we all could agree that we need to protect those things. So I, I spent, you know, a lot of years practicing law. And then when I came home, I decided to run for chief in my nation and 1995 was elected for 14 years. And a lot of what I was doing, you know, land use planning, um, a cedar strategy, uh, setting standards in our territory, uh, working hard with companies uh, that were logging our territory, trying to make the more sustainable, higher environmental standards, because we could see the impact on our land, you know, the, the clear cutting, and they don't call it clear cutting anymore, but they call it visual quality. It's still clear cutting, no matter what you say. And you look at those hillsides and you see, you know, when it rains so much, the water races down the hills into the streams. And, you know, so you can get flooding so much easier because the water just passes through those clear cuts really quickly. And, you know, of course, it brings dirt and turbidity into the water, which affects our fishery. And so that was one of my priorities was to work on high standards in our territory. We used to always tell companies that want to come and do work in our territories that, you know, we're not opposed to development but we're opposed to development that's gonna in any way negatively impact our territory in such a way that we would not be able to carry our rights out our rights. And we would explain to them exactly what that meant. We also explained to them that we would never allow development in our sacred areas. And we had those all mapped out in a land use plan. This is areas that you're never gonna touch and don't even try. Um, so just trying to set out, you know, a warning to anybody who wanted to come do business in our territory that really study our, our territorial map. And if anything's a red area, just move on. Uh, and, you know, if that's a yellow area, let's work. We can, you know, we can set standards. Uh, and so, you know, we have, of course, noticed the impact on our land and the ability to gather things like our, our grasses and our traditional medicines and, uh, you, different gathering of different foods have been impacted by logging practices within our territory. And of course, the increase in temperature, you know, when you take down all the trees, you can just feel, you know, and, and the valley has heated up. I mean, this summer, we had over 40 degree weather, which is unheard of 42 degrees. We used to think the high 30s was hot. But, you know, because the heat just socks into the Alberni Valley where we live and it just is so very hot, you know, and I worry about the um, sustainability of our forests. And one of the other greatest impacts um, in our territory is our fishery, you know, because we know that when the water is in the Alberni Canal, which leads to our rivers that goes into our 
territories, if it hits 20 degrees, the fish aren't breathing. And, you know, so there's a lot of mortalities or they hole up down the canal and, and they hole up down there too long and we have more mortalities. So we've seen the impact of warming oceans. And, you know, this is one of our core foods is our salmon in the river that comes up in Hoopachessa territory. There are five species of sockeye. And we've been lucky enough to continue to have access to them, maybe not as in great numbers in some years, but, you know, we still have it. You know, I have a freezer full of sockeye, um, you know, right now and lots of canned fish, um, black cod, you know, like we're just really blessed in our territory. Um, but we know these are endangered, the quality of the fish, the, um, the numbers of fish. And so for us, it's trying to figure out how can we change this? What kind of knowledge, you know, can we use? Uh, so, for instance, up in the northern territories of Nuchanoth, we have three nations up there working really hard on what we're calling salmon parks. And, you know, we need to be able to ensure that um, there are trees on both sides of the stream that will shade, you know, the rivers. And we need to, because, you know, logging practices are such that they would just take right from the riverbeds. And, you know, our knowledge is we've got to be able to provide shade, you know, to these fish. We also know that you don't take the first set of fish that come up the river. You know, they're the leaders. They're the ones that lead people to the spawning grounds, the rest of the fish. So you you know, we had our own management systems in place. We knew how to, you know, just fish male fish, <laughs> you know, sparing only the male fish and leaving the females to go spawn. You know, we had so many ways of managing our fisheries that we, we never ever, um, you know, lacked the ability to get food. Uh, so there's, you know, a lot of things um, that, you know, our elders passed on to us, taking care of the land, taking care of the fish, you know, ensuring, you know, we had river keepers that used to keep the streams clear of trees and branches, debris that would fall into the rivers and streams that would stop our fish from going up and spawning. Uh, so, so very many things um, that we just try to incorporate and try and get um, different people to understand because we know where we used to fish in our territories up in the northern above. Uh, we have a little dam in our territory. BC Hyder has a dam called Elsie Lake Dam. And we knew we used to fish coho way above that. And they didn't believe us, you know, but once we worked with them to alter the flow streams, then fish started coming uh, up the river more. And we were trying to get a fish, fish passage through that dam. We never did quite accomplish that. Uh, but, you know, we did some testing in some of the lakes above and found out that there were a presence of coho, you know, farther up than they than they knew. So, so much of our knowledge and trying to get things back to where they were, you know, it, it was just so important. Yeah, you talk about a number of really important things um, about uh, your traditional lands and your practices um, and culture and traditions and how that's really been impacted by industry and government. Um, 
how would you say uh, like what your biggest challenges are now um, in 2021 with um, industry and or government uh, on your lands? I think one of our biggest challenges right now is the government and industry understanding that we have to move faster on climate change. You know, both the federal government passed the net zero emissions act, the BC government has their clean BC and everybody's setting 2050. You know, if we look at today, 2021, and we see the impact of these extreme temperatures, uh, you know, these massive winds and strange storms, you know, in Vancouver, um, tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever they were, and we look at the flooding and the massive amounts of rain. We, we just have to act now. You know, we have to make those sacrifices in our lifestyle, you know, and doing that. Do we really need to double twin the Trans Mountain Pipeline? We realize how important it was getting gas to us, um, but do we really need the second one? Um, you know, there are, are things uh, like the First Nations and the regional districts on Vancouver Island own the railway from Victoria to Courtney and Parksville to Port Alberni. I've been trying to get that line going and we have no support from the BC government or the federal government at this point in time. Yet we could remove so many um, tons of greenhouse gases if people would ride the train and we know that they would. And, you know, after the Malahat was shut off for days because of this destruction of the rains and the storm, People could have been riding the train and you know and and so i think that we have to be looking at smarter ways within transportation you know the conversion of some of these semis and our regular cars into electrical vehicles and you know just getting rid of some of those greenhouse gases um, i am on the board of bc ferries you know and that's part of what bc ferries is working on for years is you know some of their vessels are LNG. Um, the newer ones are battery operated. And, and so I would really like to go further to have more of their vessels that aren't using diesel. Uh, but there's a lot of infrastructure, which is very costly that needs to be put in place. There's, there is no technology to run these huge ferries. The smaller ones are good. You know, you can do the battery operated, no problem. But the bigger ones, we need more technology. And so I, I really think that we need to be putting money into more research and tech, you know, into, you know, innovative ways of doing things better. And, you know, I really wish that a lot of our First Nations would be on the cutting edge of some of that technology, you know, coming up with new innovations that, that can help because we've already we've already done that and, and converting ourselves um, to clean energy you know many of our communities are still diesel dependent and one of our first nations Hashquit, is now 90 percent free of diesel they did a run of the river project they put in solar panels and you know they don't have to run diesel from Tofino all the way through the waters into Hesquiet, you know. And what a great blessing is that, you know, because they've always feared that if there was ever a, a spill, you know, what a disaster that would be in the ocean. Um, but you know, just trying to get ourselves um, sovereign and sovereign, depend, independent of um, the grid 
and our, you know, we suffer so much from these storms. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the power goes off in our communities from the seven days to three weeks. And, you know, if we had our own grids, our own source of power, we could fix it in, in a couple of days. And we wouldn't be, you know, losing our freezer full of meat and fish, you know, and all those, those kinds of things. So there are things that we need to do as First Nations people as well, making sure that our, the businesses we go into are sustainable, high environmental standards, um, you know, just so we can be an example to others that it is possible. Yeah, maybe cut to your profit a little bit. But, you know, it's worth it when we look at valuing keeping the land for the future generations, because otherwise, what are we going to leave them? Yeah. yeah, such good points. And really, I think what you're talking about is shifting the way that we do business now and the way that we, you know, transport ourselves and our goods Um just shifting that industry into looking at more research and clean energy. Mm -hmm. So what I think what you're talking about is like, there's a large opportunity to really shift away from these unsustainable practices mm -hmm. and still have a thriving economy <laughs> with green, green energy. Um, and uh, I know that you're on a number of boards like BC Ferries, Clean Energy BC, as well as leading your nation or your, your yeah, your nation. Um, and so are what other clean energy opportunities are you seeing? Um, and is there uh, sort of a pathway that's being created for Indigenous peoples to be involved in this industry? Like, what are you seeing um, that's available today? Well, I only wish, uh, you know, what most First Nations are focusing on right now are projects within their own communities, um, trying to make themselves um, free of the, of the grid. And the issue there, of course, is that for a lot of years, um, BC Hydro was providing contracts to buy electricity from independent power producers, and a lot of First Nations got involved in those kinds of projects. But then when the NDP BC government decided to go ahead with Site C, they put the only program that was buying power on hold. And so it's been a lot of years since anybody could actually create projects for economics, uh, for revenue, uh, which is really sad because, you know, as BC transitions to more electrical vehicles and industries, uh, they're going to need more power. Uh, but right now, they're just not asking anybody to be providing power to the grid, which is a big bar to any kind of economic development. So we've been trying to push the BC government to let us establish um, utilities. So, you know, we can compete with BC Hydro and Fortis. Uh, we can use the grid. So that's going to take some legislative changes, of course, as well as money. So through the BC Clean Energy Initiative and seeking a quarter of a billion dollars from the federal government to uh, let us establish these utilities. Because right now, between the BC government and the federal government, they're giving us like three million a year to spread out amongst all the First Nations of BC to build projects within their own communities. And it's just not enough money. You know, it's always nickel and diming when you really need some extensive capital to build some of these projects. So the the good thing about building projects in our own um, 
communities is that you know we're gaining capacity we're understanding how to set up systems they may be small but you know we know how to run them we know how to operate them so the minute there's a call for power then we'll be ready we can you know create those projects we've made great partnerships with other energy companies you know within british columbia and so if we need to partner with somebody the partnerships you know those relationships are already there and and so right now it is a big lobby because you know clean bc is insisting that you know we we reach our greenhouse gas goals and so they really do need to partner with first nations and create these opportunities and i really think that they're being very um short-sighted and not doing it now because you know it takes years to build an energy project I mean, the one we did in Hoopachesset way back in 2005, it took us approximately three years, which is a short period of time for some. Solar is a lot easier. It can be done quicker. But some of these other projects, geothermal and run of the river, take a bit of time to go through the construction. And so I, I think many First Nations realize the values of being involved in the clean energy industry and would love to do that. It's just opening opening the eyes of the BC government to, you know, provide that opportunity. I know, and with the acceptance of UNDRIP, you know, we're hoping that we can change the laws to ensure that the BC government opens those opportunities, both in the transmitting power and building power and creating the utilities that we feel will bring us into that whole industry in a new way. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think our hope in the province is that UNDRIP uh, is able to open those doors, not only for clean energy, but in a whole bunch of different aspects of, um, of our way of life. I've heard you speak in the past, Judith, about um, labeling the federal and provincial governments as junior governments. <laughs> in comparison to our, our traditional governance systems as Indigenous peoples um, on these lands since the creation of time. And it's something that I think about a lot when I am when I hear about the blocks that are happening in regards to uh, like clean energy and climate change and being able to fast track that. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to get your perspective on, um, on you know traditional governance and values and how uh th those values and governance can be um included in the climate change discussion that's happening uh in bc and across canada sure well as you said we've had our own forms of government since in our language or longer than the mind can see and, you know, we've had these systems in place, you know, in New Channel, they were forms of hereditary chiefs that was passed on from, you know, father to son, father to son. And it, it didn't change hands until the Indian Act came into effect. And then there became elected chief and councils. Today, um, some of these systems, um, both hereditary and um, elected work together and some don't, but it was, always the responsibility of our of our chiefs to ensure that the territory was looked after um, so that we would have everything we needed. He needed to look after all the people. And so 
he would ensure that his river keepers and his stream keepers and his beach keepers and the hunters, everybody was doing their job. And that's how the system worked. Um, there were laws that were in place. Uh, you know, you never took more than you needed. Uh, you know, whether that was fish or meat or trees, cedar bark, medicinal plants, because it would just go to waste. And so it was a very important concept that there was a great respect, you know, for the chief, um, for the laws, um, for the people, making sure everybody was looked after, you know, widows, children, everyone was looked after. And so the, the chief was to make sure that um, everybody had everything they needed. And so, you know, today, this some, sometimes it's shared and sometimes like we do have two, three First Nations within the channel of the 14 that are traditional forms of government. They don't have elections. They still have their hereditary chiefs in place. And so <laughs> respect for that form of government is important. It's always been a hard concept for the non-Indigenous people to see. I mean, they think democracy is the answer, but you know, we live forever on, you know, on our own hereditary chief system and, and we did well. Um, and so, but they wanted to change us when they came here. You know, that whole colonization, you know, is still affecting us today. And, you know, so that whole issue, um, even making us dependent upon the federal government for funding and money, you know, we're changing that mindset that we can take care of ourselves. We can take care of the land. We have our own laws. We have our own values and that we need to be able to do that. And so I, I think those are some of the reasons why clean energy became so popular with first nations was it's higher. Yeah, there is an impact, but it's minimal and that you can control that. So, you know, by doing some of these projects, you get to manage your territory in a way that you would, you know, you really enjoy and that your members can see that you're upholding those values and you can create revenue, you can create jobs, you can create capacity. And it, it also instills great pride in our people. And uh, just to see that, hey, you know, we're part of this industry, we're doing this. and. You know, and I just, it, it just really, um, really feels good that, you know, you're doing this, you're removing greenhouse gas, so nothing has to be built because you're providing it and you're not going to be creating greenhouse gases and, and we can actually supply our own community with clean energy. So there's all kinds of, of benefits. Uh, and so, you know, asserting our traditional forms of government or, you know, our current forms of government really keeps us strong as a people. And it just, you know, this is the way it is. And this is what people have to accept. And that's, I, I think those are some of the basic principles behind UNDRIP is recognizing our own forms of government and what that brings with it, uh, the high environmental standards, taking care of the land for the people. Agreed, agreed. So just one last question here um, before we let you go. Uh, just wondering, you know, what your vision would be, Judith, uh, in, you know, 20 years time or 30 years time um, for your nation uh, and the work that you're doing in regards to clean energy and climate change and, and the uh, weaving in of Indigenous knowledge? 
Yeah. Well, I'd like, I'd love to see our lands being healthy and viable. You know, that we aren't experiencing these extreme weather events, whether it's heat or floods, uh, you know, that we have those levels of greenhouse gases under control, you know, so that we can go back to the kind of life we've always known that, you know, our rivers are full of our fish and we can go into the forests and find our medicines and our foodstuffs and, um, you know, that we are just, you know, we're independent of the grid that we are all operating on forms of clean energy that our industries are sustainable. You know, and, and I think that's really, really important because I see, you know, some First Nations choosing to get involved in the non-renewable sector and, and that's their choice. But the long-term impacts on our people have to be dealt with. You know, is it creating problems for health? You know, because along with healthy land, you need healthy people and you need to make sure that the effects of your development is not impairing the health of your people. And I'd love to be able to see us continuing to practice our rights, you know, whether it's hunting, fishing, trapping, gathering of all kinds of things that we don't have to be telling our grandchildren, hey, grandson, we used to have these awesome fish and they were so tasty and then we could go out into the river and, and fish them, but they don't exist anymore. I don't ever wanna to have to say that. I don't want my, my grandchildren to have to say that to their children. And, you know, so for me, that's, you know, the vision, that's what kind of drives me is being able to um, continue our way of life, to have what's important to us, to go out into the forest, to uh, our sacred sites and know that they're still intact, that they haven't been destroyed by industry, by development. And because, you know, those places have been utilized for generations and that's the power of those places. And we have to be able to keep those. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I'd love to go um, in the future and, and what I'm working towards. Thank you so much, Judith, for spending some time with us here and celebrating the second publication of our Indigenous business magazine, Makuk P. Salem. Um, I wish you all the best on your journey and look forward to continuing to watch the incredible work that you're doing for your nation and for all Indigenous peoples in British Columbia. And thank um, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, that concludes our podcast with uh, Dr. Judith Sayers from um, the, the president of the New Channel uh, Tribal Council here this morning and uh, look forward to continuing um, our relationship and uh, watching the work that you're doing in this province. Great. Nice to spend some time with you, Chastity.